0: All right. My good friend, Richard Hanania, I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years. We had a mutual friend, Chris, who I went to law school with, has right. been a uh, great friend and, and ally of mine and, and vice versa, a fellow basketball fan we were in law school. But he told me, he always told me, there's this guy, Richard, you really need to talk to him. Huh. And You know, Chris is not with us on the right, right? He's he's somewhere else on the, on the political spectrum, but independent thinker. But he mm. always said... You know, these two guys need to get together. He finally put us together. And uh, I think you got, you were helpful in getting me my first TV hit. I've been now on TV, like literally hundreds of times in the last couple of years. I think one of my first or second TV hits, you connected me with some producer long before I was doing television. So that was cool. Mm -hmm. But then I wrote Woke Inc. And there's the, you know, widely acclaimed book. It was really positively (laughs) received. Number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And then there's just like this really critical review that just throws the water on the spreading fire of woke ink. And who do I read? It's none other than Richard Hanano, which I got to say I respected because I uh, I get praise from a lot of people, uh, I get thoughtless criticism from a lot of people, but thoughtful criticism that's worth something actually. And so you know what? I, I learned a couple of things from that piece you wrote. I've actually taken some of the points and run with them. Right. Even since writing Woke Ink and Nation of Victims, who would have ever thought we're human beings that evolve our thoughts? They're not static yeah. over time. And you're one of the people, one of the rare people I have to thank for pushing me beyond where I was even as recently as two years ago. And, you know, I know you're the same way too. You're mm-hmm. one of those rare people who's open to doing this thing that we don't do often enough in our discourse, which is changing our mind. Right. So we're going to get into a, 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 you know, we're going to get into a, <laughs> a controversial topic today. But um, before we do, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know about you, but I, you know, we've never really had a po- conversation outside of policy. Mm-hmm. Like, w- what gets you going? Right? You clearly have some fire that's driving you.
1: I think we share that in common. Yeah. Tell me about yours. So, uh, yeah, Vivek, I mean, that was a nice sort of rundown of, of our history together. Um, yeah, I was approached by American Affairs to review uh, Woke Inc. And I wasn't thinking, oh, Vivek will like this or maybe Vivek won't like this. I just sort of, you know, put out there when I was thinking about this because I had thinking, thought about these woke issues for a while. And, um, you know, you actually, I was impressed because you reached out to me and we actually, you know, started talking more after that. I'm like, oh, this guy's not going to want to have anything to do with me again. I thought, you know, most people, <laughs> I think nine out of 10 people probably would have had that reaction. Um, so the fact that that sort of you know you took st- you, you took something from it you worked mad about it I mean you just developed your ideas over time I was really really impressed with that and we've been of course uh, uh, in touch ever since um, you know so my background is I'm sort of a lapsed academic um, I thought I'd be going into academia I uh, had a um, I had got my PhD in political science from UCLA um, I had a fellowship for a few years at Columbia I'm still affiliated with uh, the University of uh, uh, I got affiliation with University of Texas right now. Um, But I started writing more for public consumption. I really didn't like academia. I didn't think that it wasn't just the politics stuff, which most of your listeners will know about. Um, it's more that the sort of the um, even if that didn't exist, it's the sort of the narrowness of the of the topic. They want you to you know settle in, uh, you know, research one tiny aspect of sort of human human experience or human existence. And any if you want to say anything that's you know uh, substantial about the world, you have to draw from a lot of things. You have to draw from anthropology, psychology, politics, economics. Right? You, these things aren't separate. These se- these separations are artificial. Um, and so I started, um, just, you know, writing stuff on the Substack, writing stuff for, you know, various publications, and it got a lot of attention. And I said, wow, this, you know, writing for a broad audience, saying what I think and being able to take ideas, uh, as they come, change my mind, not being, you know, hemmed in by a topic or a method or whatever, this is, this is much better than I, what I was doing before. Um, and as far as, you know, sort of what, what, what drives me in all this, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of human civilization and, and human progress, um, we both share the uh, immigrant background. You know, my parents, you know, they uh, they came here as adults um, from, you know, uh, really in, in poverty. And you know, you see the differences in uh, between the regions in the U.S. and between populations. And you know, if you have a historical perspective, you're like, wow, even people who are poor today are infinitely better off than people who were 500 or a thousand years ago. Um, and the question is, you know, how we got here and sort of how we could maintain what's valuable and how can we. Uh, Um, sort of incorporate, you know, new technologies and, you know, new challenges that come up. So I've always found these, you know, uh, uh, questions sort of fascinating at a very broad sort of meta level. And, you know, I feel lucky to be able to write on the topics that I care about.
0: Yeah, I um, I think one of the things I respect about you is you're willing to change your mind. When I look at a lot of my peers in the profession I'm in, very few people have the courage to do that, Right. This is something that bothers me about the Republican Party today. Before we get to talking about affirmative action, and that is definitely the theme. I mean, you're the man to talk to about that. Uh, It's a core issue for me. We'll get to that. But there's something about even talking about affirmative action that we ought to talk about first, which is this idea of courage. Like, what does it mean to be courageous? You know, Teddy Roosevelt had this expression, right? Speak softly and carry a big stick. To be honest with you, I look at most of the other Republicans today, even the other presidential candidates and what I see or would-be's, and what I see is a sad perversion of that. Speak loudly and carry a small stick, which is to say that you become entrenched in a position, speak only to your tribe Puff your chest and say, you know what, if NBC News is mean to me or whatever, I'm not going to talk to them. I'm only going to talk to the people who already agree with me and then boast about free speech without actually living it. I was on CNBC last night. We had a sparring debate with a former Democratic U.S. senator with a host that was, you know, didn't love a lot of what I had to say, but I respected them having me on and I returned that by actually showing up. And One of the things I love about you, and I I try to embody this as best I can too, is, is courage isn't acting courageous and puffing your chest after actually having prepped with all of your political consultants to then talk to a bunch of people in a home state that are rallying behind you and standing up and cheering. It's actually engaging with the ideas that you disagree with and even the people who criticize you. And we just don't see that anymore. I mean, I think it's just mostly missing in our politics. I mean, I think one of the would-be entrants to this presidential race, I, I, I whose actions I love, it disappoints me. And part of me hurts as an American when we say that, oh, I'm not going to engage with somebody who says things that I disagree with. Like, what's your honest take on that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the courage thing is interesting. You know, whatever people say, oh, you know, you're very courageous to say this or that. I say, well, you know, there's men out there who go fight wars, who go die in this yeah, or do that. Exactly. And, You know, I I write for a living. I mean, me and you. You know, we're not in the space where we're you know losing our lives or you know risking our lives on a daily basis or anything like that. Um. So you know, I think the least we could you know the least we could do the least we owe the world is to actually say what we think and you know not be scared. Let the let the chips fall where they may. You know, I I discovered when I started writing things that you know there's there's a market for that. I mean, it's maybe it's not always the best uh, uh strategy, but in a world where sort of everyone is just sort of putting their finger up to the wind, um, being the one person who does who doesn't do that i mean it gives you a little bit of a comparative advantage and i think people do respond to that so you know i think that trump uh, I think Trump 2016 really scrambled people's brains for how politics works. They said, "Oh, you know, Republicans believe X, Y, and Z, and this guy is saying, you know, uh, the opposite of that." Oh, they're not going to like him. And it was, it was more. I think a lot of the they just liked the attitude. They liked someone who said stuff. Who you know, no matter how the Trump movement and how the presidency turned out, they just liked someone who said stuff who got attacked for it and just uh, stuck to his guns. And so, yeah, there's you know, there's something about courage and just sort of. You know, I think we've gotten away from that. I think you know, maybe uh you know, uh you know a hundred years ago, maybe you'd read the great books, maybe you'd re- read about you know Greek tragedy, you'd read about the Bible. you'd have this sort of moral instruction. um I think we've gotten away from that. I think you know there's a you know big mental health health crisis that I was recently uh, writing about. Um, you know, I just think there's something for it's not just a social good. It's it's good for on an individual level. Honesty is just good for the soul. Not everyone can be 100 percent honest all the time. You're running for office. I don't think you're gonna say every single thought that pops into your head. But look, on the spectrum from, you know, complete honesty to uh you know to just sort of being a snivelling politician and just, you know, going with the wind. I think we need more people to just go more towards honesty. I, I think I think for an individual level and a societal level.
0: I'm gonna get pretty close to sharing what goes through my head actually. And I reserve the right to correct for things that I think are wrong because part of the way you explore your own understanding is to get your ideas on the table, hear the best arguments response. Yeah. and response. And I just you. think we have this stultified culture of fear that stops us from, from doing that. Um, you, yeah. know, you did talk about the mental health crisis too. I, I, there's so many side eddies here, but you see it especially among young Americans, right? And I think that one of the things that is causing it, I think, is, you know, one of the things I said when we launched the campaign was we have this hunger for purpose and meaning and identity at a moment when patriotism, faith, family, hard work, the things that used to fill that void have disappeared. But I think it's it's like two rivers that collide. OK, that's one of the rivers. The other river that's colliding is this culture that makes young people in particular afraid, of expressing themselves. It's like a whitewater rafting analogy. When two rivers collide, you have a rapid that's not twice as powerful, but 10 times as powerful as either of them alone. And I think that that's part of what's fueling this so called mental health epidemic, be it depression, anxiety. I think it's fueled by this sense of lost sense of purpose with a suppression of your ability to express yourself those two are on a collision course. It's no surprise that depression and anxiety and even addiction are on the rise, especially amongst young Americans who suffer that. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Jonathan Heights, uh, you know, Substack has a lot of good recent stuff on this. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the sort of depression, what's happening, you you might notice people who are our age or older, or even a little bit younger, might not notice it. But if you look at what's happening to like, you know, people 12 to 20, mm-hmm, um, they mm-hmm. are they are in bad shape. I mean, really, any poll question you want to check, you know, you want to check suicide numbers, you want to check uh, rates of depression, uh, the last 10, 15 years have been really bad. Uh, Part of it is probably uh, social media. I recently came to the conclusion in a a piece, Um, but part of it is also these sort these ideas that you know that have sort of uh, I think taken hold in the last fifteen years. I mean, a lot of the evidence points in that direction. Uh, It's hit young girls the worst. It's hit people who identify young people who identify as liberal the most and. A lot of the stuff they believe. I mean, it's just you know they believe they, they believe the you know life is as bad as it's ever going to be. I mean the uh you know the you know the, their belief about you know inequality is worse than ever. You know the the climate crisis is going to you know maybe there's some you know there's some there's something you know there's environmental issues, but just the c- catastrophizing. Um, of the media of the last 10, 15 years, driven by algorithms, driven by social media, driven by, you know, a general hysteria in the culture. It has not been good. It's not good for people. And I think politicians, you know, political leaders, they have a role to play. I mean, they can go along with this wave. I think that's why you do see a lot of negativity. I think that a lot of the negativity on the right and the left is driven by people sort of sensing this in the, in the, popu- in the population and just going along with it. Um, but, you know, politicians could... could uh, Uh, could be a positive force. uh, Leaders generally could be a positive force on this. I mean,
0: rarer than not, but um, I hope so. That's why I'm doing this thing. Yeah. So on this topic of courage, let's get into the topic we were going to talk about, which is affirmative action today. I think it's a passion of yours and mine to end affirmative action in America for once and for all. It's weird though, Richard, I think that most Republicans, like nearly all Republicans I talk to, and actually a good number of people who aren't Republican either, agree with this policy. And yet, I don't think, you can correct me if you have knowledge to the contrary, I don't think there has been ever a single Republican candidate for U.S. president that has expressly committed to ending affirmative action in America, which is Weird, because it's one of the things a US president can actually play a role in effectuating. Certainly no elected president has done it. What do you think is going on there? And then let's get into the meat and the history and the and the debate and the thick of the debate around this too. Yeah.
1: So you're – I mean this is something that I've been thinking and writing a lot about. My book Origins of Oak, has actually an entire chapter on uh, Republicans and civil rights law and what's actually happened here. So first of all, the, the uh, issue of affirmative action, it's sort of um, – you know, it's 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 a thing where they will, uh, you know, they're afraid to talk about it in any real detail. And when you uh, and they have actually talked about it, but at the most abstract level. So, like politicians have said, like you know, I I'm opposed to quotas. Now, even Democrats, if you go to liberal Democrats, they'll say they oppose quotas too. If you go to uh, you know, the uh, Alida Kagan or something, they'll say quotas are illegal. So it's, it's it's a very you know at the very abstract. Okay, but it's level. quotas. I mean, it it's is just, quotas, just, exactly, there's no, exactly there's
0: no doubt about it. Th- this this is quotas the with the window dressing. Uh,
1: Literally, I mean, in, 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 uh, the you know the in the um, uh, executive order uh, one one two four six that you talk about in those regulations, they talk about goals and timetables. You have a goal, you need and to a have time a timetable. You have a goal and goals and timetables. Yes, not a quota, and it will say in the exact you same have, document, e- no quotas. You have goals. <laughs> you have goals and, and <laughs> and goals and a deadline. Yeah, yeah you yeah. have you have a mandate and a deadline to deliver yeah. it by. And it's it's funny. I mean, you could like you have to set the you could set the goals yourself at timetables. But look, if they're not happy with it, they'll they'll come after you. So of course. There's its quotas. Exactly. Let's just
0: have to talk about the issue. It's a racial quota system. Yeah. And to people who don't know executive order 11246 who are, you know, new to this. So that's an executive order implemented by Lyndon Johnson. That means it didn't go through the democratic elected process of the lawmakers. Right. Lyndon Johnson by executive order said that basically anybody who does business with the federal government federal government contractors it's not a small segment it's about 20 percent of the u.s workforce covered by companies that fit this description have to effectively adopt these race-based quota systems in order to be able to do business with the federal government and every president since lyndon johnson including every republican president from nixon to reagan to bush one to bush two to trump could have taken a pen and crossed it out, and they didn't. And I think the reason is fear of political backlash, but it's weird to me. I mean, some of them have said as much. The policy advisors, I've pressed them on this as to why not. They said, we don't want to die on that political hill. But it's weird because they've died on so many other political hills from you know controversial failed wars to you know all kinds of other things. I mean, Trump appeared to be unafraid, and I think there's a difference between being unafraid and being appearing to be unafraid. But he certainly appeared to be unafraid and yet would not touch this. It's a sort of third rail, untouchable issue. Like, what do you, just on the psychology of the, let's get into the substance in a minute, but just on the psychology of the politics of this, like, why is this a sacred cow you're not supposed to touch? Because I'm all over this. And, and if I'm making a mistake, I'm gonna I'm still gonna keep doing it. But I at least would like to know what it is, because I can't even figure it out what exactly is stopping a Republican party from doing what its
1: base wants to do. And even what most of these people in private will agree with me on. So, I mean, the history here is, you know, even even more interesting than that. So. Not only, I mean, did Nixon not uh, uh, get rid of this executive order, he expanded it. It was actually the modern affirmative action oh, really? regime came during the Nixon administration. Wait, same, administration. same word uh, to me about that. I should know this, uh, and I don't. So it was uh, the, the Philadelphia plan. Basically, it's really it's really funny. I okay, this I think I've heard of this, actually. Okay, it's, what was it? I so don't I, know what I, So I cover, So Nixon had a plan that he's going to split the white uh, construction workers who are excluding black people, uh, the labor unions from the Democratic Party. So it was actually, he, so, and then the Democrats actually revolted in, in Congress. And the Democrats and Republicans were going to actually uh, overrule this by legislation. And Nixon talked the Republicans into not doing it. Be- and he specifically told us, look, this is going to split labor and the civil rights group. It was almost like too clever by half. And so he just went after the construction industry. His um, his labor department under him, apparently, it doesn't appear he knew this, but the labor department extended it from construction to all federal contractors. There's no record that Nixon even knew. So it's funny. It just started as a war against labor unions. It ended up being uh, extended through the civil rights bureaucracy to everybody.
0: Nixon, a Republican, expanded the Johnson-era executive order-driven
1: racial quota Exactly, and it's. I mean, it's fa- the history of this is just so fascinating because it started out as a way to split uh, the labor unions, the okay. uh, construction workers. Um, against uh, the civil rights people. So basically it's the labor unions, you know, where this closed space where it'd be father to son or whatever. And then Nixon came in and basically said, you know, you're going to have to have uh, basically racial quotas because you've been excluding black people for too long. Really? Exactly, yeah. So from the unions? Yeah. From the so, so it's
0: like a divide and conquer it to fight the unions. It was a divide and conquer. Yeah, the okay. unions
1: versus the civil rights establishment on the, on the Democratic side. The Democrats and Congress pushed back on this. So Democrats and Republicans were actually going to overrule this, and they were going to pass a law saying that Nixon couldn't do this. He talked the Republicans- Couldn't do And what is the this? Require quotas in the unions. It, it, exactly. Require <laughs> the goals and timetables. Right. Okay. So the Democrats- Goals and
0: timetables means quotas. Yeah. So Nixon I'm going say to yeah, keep saying quotas, but I'm going to keep saying quotas because I think it's intentional to call it out for what it is. Would, but but I yeah. got you. Yep. Yeah. If
1: someone Googles the Nixon support quotas, you'll find all these quotations. I am against quotas. And yeah, everyone or else or will or say it's a so, lie. Yeah. yeah. These, these, uh, so these racial quotas. Um, and then uh, – so then the, that's how he could – he talked the Republicans into this divide and conquer strategy on the left. Then his labor department expanded it from you – know, this was just construction, uh, government-funded construction contracts. They expanded it to all federal contractors. And from the historical oh, the record – the
0: DOL expanded it to all Federal it, government contractors. Hadn't Johnson already done that though? Well, the
1: executive order itself is very vague. All it says is you must take affirmative action to make sure you do not discriminate race, gender, sexual orientation. So that doesn't actually say quotas or timetables or anything. Okay. It could be read as you know, it could be read as just a non discrimination, you know, very basic thing. And so this really took off. The so effort. the
0: Labor Department under Nixon is the one that actually implemented the goals and timetables exactly. for the private sector. Yeah.
1: Not Johnson. Not Johnson. No. Johnson signed the EO, but the EO became the basis Got, it, got of it, got what it, got Nixon it. did later.
0: Under the same EO, under the authority of the same EO, though, 11246. It, exactly. So Nixon didn't put out a new EO, he was just implementing the, it the, was just, the Johnson. It was one. just yeah, in, it. Was and that's where the goals and timetables came in. Exactly. But it's a way of effing up the unions,
1: basically. Yeah. That was a, that was a dividing, start.
0: conquer, and beat the unions by giving them a taste of their own medicine, kind of thing. Right, and then oh, the and then the
1: expansion. It seemed like there were real ideologues who believed in affirmative action who wanted to expand it. And Nixon wasn't even paying attention at that point. You know, he was. This was this was almost coming up to Watergate. So he, he was busy with other things and doing. Yeah, but each side was sort of using China. the other. Yeah. yeah, so
0: Nixon thought he was being cute, and they were just like, "Great, let's just make this useful idiot who's distracted by this other stuff a pawn to." permanently enshrined race based quotas in America. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so when
0: by the time and, and do you think that was there any split in the civil rights movement advocates about this possibility or will most just be like, yeah, absolutely let's take it and run?
1: It's uh, it depends on uh, when in the history you look. So before the Civil Rights Act, and you know who knows how much of this is politics, how much of this is genuine belief, but when the Civil Rights Act was uh, uh, you know was being debated inside, everyone said you know, n- n- nothing like affirmative action. Colorblind, like po- colorblind. Yep, that's exactly. That's what my
0: understanding saying. of what the rhetoric was around the civil rights revolution.
1: Yeah, and it's it switches. I mean, almost on a dime. I mean, by you know, two, three years later, you have the EEOC. It needs something to do. Nobody is putting up whites only signs or anything. I mean, nobody's saying they're discriminating based on race. So very early, they start using statistical discrimination. They say you don't have In the early 70s, people. we're talking now. Uh, we're talking, yeah, late 60s, early 70s. Yep. It really takes off. Uh, Griggs versus Duke Power. So 1971 was the case that said uh, an IQ test, uh, even if there's no intention to discriminate, uh, it could be discriminatory if one group does better than the other. So that was a 1971 case. So the EEOC, the EEOC thought it would lose that case. It said that his, the, uh, the uh, statutory history of this is so clear that we're probably going to lose, and then we're going to have to decide what to do. And they actually won at the Supreme Court, uh, believe it or not. There was People were sort of sleepwalking into this stuff. People weren't really paying much attention.
0: So, so just to understand, the EEOC was on the side. It was sort of the plaintiff in this case. Yeah. Pressing the idea that because there were disparate outcomes based on IQ tests or intelligence tests of some kind that were used, aptitude tests... That that could itself be evidence of actual discrimination and therefore be a civil rights violation. Exactly. And the EEOC brought the case still thinking it was a long shot, is your point. Yeah. It um And it, then well, and then they ended up winning. Yeah, exactly. And this is which court who's, who's under which justice? Uh this was justice. the um,
1: this was the uh, uh uh burger court, I think. Burger court, okay. Yeah. Okay. Got Either it. Warren or Burger, out of Burger Warren yep, or Burger,
0: yeah. Yep. Okay. And so they uphold it.
1: Uh, yes, they 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 back up what the EEOC uh, was doing um, without finding evidence of direct discrimination. Well, they they actually they did have it. A- I could imagine the court wanting to hang its hat
0: on some thin basis there, even though they're sort of packing in and in sort of pre-laying the groundwork for the statistical. Discrimination. I'm just. I just want to know the yeah. basis of the yeah, decision. The, so
1: the, technically, the EOC. I don't think well, they weren't the plaintiff. So it was Greggs versus Duke Power Company. So somebody named Griggs was. Uh, so, yeah, but actually, in this case, if you look at the record, there was some evidence that historically this uh, this plant might have been discriminating. But it was very clear from the decision that's not the point. Uh, they're saying basically, uh, if there's anything that causes a disparate impact. Um, you know, you could still—it's a presumption. It's a presumption of discrimination. You could still mm-hmm. overcome that presumption, but you know how expensive and uh, uncertain that is. You know, that's just going to naturally lead to uh, quotas and other kind of you know affirmative steps to make sure that you know you have some kind of racial balancing. But yeah, that was that was the big case. The 19—I mean, I don't know how deeply you want to get into this, but the 19th century is the answer. The, it's the statutory history is so interesting because. When they were debating the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, in, in Illinois, Illinois had its own version of like the EEOC, and they went after Motorola precisely on this basis. Some black guy didn't do well on a test. The, e, the Illinois version of EEOC came and said, okay, this, this is evidence that the test is discriminatory. Congress. So this
0: was, is a state level, like equal uh, opportunity thing and, says, a disparate outcomes case and, in and so li- this, Illinois.
1: Yeah, and so this became a major story. And they debated this in Congress. They're like, "Is is this going to happen when we pass the Civil Rights Act?" They're like, "No, this cannot happen." They go out of their way to say you can have a, a you know a professionally valid psychological test. It's called the Tower Amendment, uh, uh, added by Senator Tower of Texas. Um, they went out of their way to say explicitly that this would not happen in the in the Civil Rights Act. Yes, there is something so, called the Tower Amendment. Yeah. The to- so the
0: Tower Amendment is in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It is, Yeah. Because the Illinois case predated it,
1: exactly. And, oh, so, and so oh, this wow. was there was a big New York, the New York Times, at and what the time, did they
0: say? Like literally, you can have facially non-discriminatory
1: tests as, as long as they were not designed or used to discriminate. Now they now the courts can you know you 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 you've been to law school you know how courts can play that they you play with that they weren't designed or used to discriminate but the legislative history was specifically. Well, I think that's, that's
0: that's socially fraught territory if you get into the point of saying that something could be facially discriminatory ex-ante, if it's just an aptitude test, to know that that would be facially discriminatory ex-ante yeah. is very dangerous. I mean, and, you, you and, see where I'm going with that, very and, dangerous and, and this, territory.
1: And this 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 principle is not limited to tests. Gail Harriot, um, professor at uh, UC Sandy, uh, uh, UCSD, um, has basically said everything is... Disparate impact. Look, if you have a thing saying show up on time, you know, the odds that every race is going to show up on time, The you know, at the exact same rate. It's yeah. so so what know, I call
0: scope three disparate impact.
1: So basically she says disparate impact. Look, it, ban, it bans everything because literally everything has a disparate impact and then gives the government basically unlimited discretion uh, at what it goes after. So, so now it's like. You know, the under Obama administration, EEOC was saying, "Oh, it's a um, uh, criminal background check, right?" They started saying, "You do criminal background check. Look, all races don't have uh, equal odds of having a, a crime, uh, you know, having been convicted of a crime. So therefore, that's discriminatory." So just about anything they want to do now, they can do. This is the, this disparate impact, um, this disparate impact principle is sort of the uh, you know I call it the skeleton key of the left you know they they uh when, when it was like COVID, it was like oh you want to get rid of your mask mandate they, they you know they try to apply it they you know, they apply it to disability law now they'll mm-hmm. say oh this has a disparate impact on disabled children or whatever right anything they want to do with COVID, oh you have to close schools you know whatever kids get COVID more if you know black hispanic communities at hardest literally anything they want to do disparate I mean, impact
0: is the, is the trojan horse for exactly. taking the quota is, system it is, it is, everywhere
1: it is yeah. a really evil principle i mean it's you know it's facially absurd it 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 grants arbitrary government so, power. So what
0: do you think actually – I mean, what you just said you know, cuts in the other direction. Statutorily, you would say the Civil Rights Act with the Tower Amendment argue against the idea of disparate impact being a basis for a violation. So just delineate, put some meat on the bone here as to, well, why is that still nonetheless the prevailing norm today? Or is it? I mean, this is a somewhat controversial idea. Well,
1: yeah, the, the courts – I mean the 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 legis- You know, the, the legislative history is not controversial. There was even a um, – No, the
0: legislative history is not controversial. I'm asking what – like the state of the law today, is it that disparate impact can be a basis for finding a civil rights violation even when there's no discriminatory that, that's, intent? That's the
1: entire civil rights regime. It's not a it can. It's the entire civil that's rights That's my regime. sense of it. But yeah. my
0: question is in light of what you said about the Tower Amendment – how did we get from there where they, where the framers of the Civil Rights Act so expressly wanted to be clear that so-called disparate impact would not be a basis for civil rights violation? To be that's the statute itself to get to a regime where now if you apply a test, say an aptitude test or criminal background check that results in disparate results on the basis of race – today to infer that that's a civil rights violation how did we get from a to b i know Griggs was part of it but that's one case a little more meat on the bone there
1: yeah there was um you know so there was yeah so the 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 affirmative action and contract is also sort of a disparate impact principle it's like the, all you do is you look at your employees and you say if you don't have this number of people in this job then you set the goal or timetable so it's the same it's actually like the same sort of principle um and you know how how, how we got here i mean it was really i mean it was really neglect i mean like I think that Republicans for a lot of years didn't want to think too hard about this stuff, and so the liberals in the Supreme Court said, "Okay, we agree with you. No quotas." The Bakke decision, right? Diversity, not not quotas. Okay, well that's sort of you know that's sort of you know hokey and sort of you know sounds sounds nice and it could mean anything, and so a lot of this stuff flew under the radar. The 19, I mean, to continue sort of the history of this executive uh, order and affirmative action, um, Reagan wanted to get rid of it. I mean, this was like a serious debate within the Reagan administration. Um, and he was basically you know, told by members of Congress that the Republicans and Democrats would over, overturn his veto. He, he tried to do something else on uh, civil Reagan rights. Reagan
0: wanted to get rid of what? Executive uh, Order 1246. Yeah.
1: Or, or do a new executive order that reinterpreted it to you know, get rid of affirmative action. Good uh, for Reagan. Yeah, exactly, and he, uh, you know, he, um, there was something called the uh, Civil Rights Restoration Act. That's a whole other thing, but he also he did that, but then Congress overruled his veto, so he tried to pull back civil rights law in this, uh, which actually was a lot of this Title IX stuff came from that. If Reagan we got Reagan got his way on this other thing, but anyways, the just to stay on the affirmative act, uh, the affirmative action and contracting thing. Yeah, so Republicans and Democrats. I mean, look, whenever affirmative action has gone to the voters. Um, it said no. Yeah. They said no, except one. You know, one or two cases where it just barely squeaked by. Um, even in like places like California and Washington, it's lost. Um, but I, th- but I think like you know, at least when re- uh, when re- uh, during Reagan's time, it was like this bipartisan. Me- you know, there was a, there was you know there wasn't conservative media back then, and it was just like somebody is you know pro civil rights and somebody is against civil rights. And I think Republicans probably didn't think about it too much. And Reagan, because he was a little bit more ideological, maybe more in tune with conservative thought. You know, saw what was going on here. Um, but you know, Congress Congress opposed – the Republicans take Congress in 1994. They think about getting rid of affirmative action there, um, and then they uh, they don't. They have a big fight actually within the caucus. And how uh, would they have done it? Just legislatively.
0: Just new last statute banning any base of federal exactly. race-based discrimination. Yeah, there was yeah. A,
1: there was something called like the Civil Rights Act of I think 1994 and 1995. Bob Dole
0: asked – It never for, passed though.
1: Did not it, ever. It pass. never even came, came to a vote. Um, Bob Dole asked for an inventory of all programs in the federal government when he was a senator that use uh, race. And they came back to him with 160 of them. Really? And this was in preparation of potentially banning all of that. And but they just made a decision. They just got they got scared of the issue, you know, Gingrich and these people in Congress. They just, they just blinked. I I can't find like really a good good reason for it. Um, they they just seem to have gotten scared. And then people just sort of forgot. I mean, it was just was not a live issue anymore. Trump in 2016 says I'm okay with. It. I don't think he knew what it was like. Trump, I don't think like you know wants racial consciousness in hiring. But you know they ask him about affirmative action. And he just goes, um, yeah, yeah, I'm okay with it. He probably thinks it just means like, you know, be nice to everybody. Um, yeah, but, but the- he's the president of
0: the United States, and he's setting public policy in an America first agenda. Yeah. And so for him to bless this, yeah, I think actually, I think it's dangerous. Yeah. Because I- it actually it actually codifies. I mean, if, if you're on the left and you're arguing for these race-based court systems, and Trump's your number one on most things. But even
1: he turns a blind eye and says he's cool with these race-based quota systems, that's a problem. Un- unquestionably, yeah. And, you know, I was actually listening to a podcast um, where the head of the um, the part of the Labor Department that's in charge of these affirmative action programs, he was on a Federalist Society podcast, and he was— he was bragging about how they actually expanded it during the Trump administration. They brought intersectionality into it. They would say, Oh, you look at blacks and you look at women, look at black women. I mean, it was really uh it was really uh it's really shocking. I talked to some people actually who were in the Trump White House and I showed them this podcast of the guy in the labor department bragging about this. I'm like, you know, well, what's going well, on here?
0: Who was in the Labor Department bragging about it?
1: Oh, the head of the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, OFCCP, which is the part of the Labor Department that runs the affirmative action. uh, the uh, executive oh God. That implements
0: OFCCC.
1: Level. OFCCP.
0: CCP. Office of okay. Federal
1: Contract Compliance Programs. Like,
0: I love any federal agency that <laughs> it's CCP. Okay. Yeah. So the OFCCP in the Labor Department administers.
1: Yeah. How many people do you think work there? Uh, probably not that many it's a sub agency within I'm going to the, fire them. what do you think I think that would be a good plan yeah
0: I mean, just get rid of them so they can't do their job.
1: I think that would that and would their work.
0: Job is itself a job that shouldn't be done.
1: They that would. So. I mean that would work. I mean and you know the yeah the guy was I mean the guy, I, I talked to somebody close to the you know who was in the Trump White House and he said he was shocked. He was like what what is this? They had no idea what was going on. Somebody just told them that probably in the Labor Department probably said this is a good guy to run this thing. And he goes and he goes to corporate America and he says okay incorporate intersectionality into your affirmative action plans. And nobody from,
0: from the Labor Department.
1: Yeah exactly and and like the conservative movement. So wait, what's what's the nexus
0: of so, 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 is this guy sitting in the CCP office of the uh, of the labor department, OSF, CCP, whatever yeah, yeah. alphabet soup, ungrammatical amalgam of random letters that ha- end with CCP, is calling up then people in corporate America are saying you might be in violation if yeah. you're doing business with the federal government, yeah, I, if you're not meeting these goals and timetables. Yeah.
1: I is don't that, know if he's calling them. he's sending them letters saying, you know, we're going to do more, you know, uh, spot checks, you know, they, they you know, it's, the it's enforcement is sort of superma- sporadic. So they're, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're um, increasing enforcement. Um, they're, you know, expanding the search of what, what they're looking for. Um, yeah. There was no sense that this is, you know, a, there was no sense of like, this might be contrary, you know, from what from uh, listening to this guy. There was no sense. This might be contrary to Trump's message or what most Republicans believe, um, or whatever. And the conservative media dropped the ball here. I mean, like, you know, they they when they ha- when conservative media is concerned about things, I mean, Republican politicians tend to listen, and I think this is why this is changing. I mean, I saw just recently. Um, uh, in Texas, uh, you know, Greg Abbott um, uh, just uh, s- sent a memo to all state agents that said no more DEI hiring. I mean, what took so long? Republic- Republicans. What took so long right now? Exactly. Th- Asleep
0: at the switch, poll test it until you make sure it's really safe and then you do it?
1: Yeah. I would th- when this
0: stuff has been ossified in the culture, I mean, where are these leaders when we need them?
1: Yeah. I mean, like 25, 30 years, Republicans have been in control of Texas. I mean, all it took was one governor coming along and saying, yeah, don't do this. I mean, a lot of this stuff is not legislation, it's, it's executive orders, it's agency action. So this makes it actually easy. I mean, it's, it's easy. Like, you know, if something you have to pass a law for, that's the most difficult thing. So how
0: much, how much of the affirmative action we see in America is created either directly or in the shadow of, I would say the combination of this executive order, its implementation, break down for me, the pie chart of what you think the sources of affirmative action in America are.
1: So, you know, I think that it's, you know, it's hard to say because we've had 60 years of government regulation and then you've created a whole new culture and you've created whole new industries. The human resources industry takes off in the 1960s out of affirmative action, uh, uh, affirmative action offices. I mean, they just need to keep up with what Washington wants and what they're doing. Um, There's, I mean, the universities, I hope we get to talk about the universities. because. They actually, uh, the Nixon administration, and I don't want to even blame Nixon personally for this, but uh, basically one of the the government agencies, the precursor to uh, uh, education and health and human services, goes to universities and says, we want data on the race and gender of your makeup. Columbia University comes back and says, that is against our principles. We don't even keep data. This is Columbia University on race and sex,
0: and their nexus for doing this is federal funding. Exactly. Yes. Okay. This is Got this it. is Title Six. That's si- why the, I love Hillsdale College because they don't yeah. take the federal funding, so they still don't this do this. Is this
1: is Title time. Six. This is not private employment. This is a yeah, different. Title of Six Civil is, Civil the, Rights Act. is the
0: university yeah. funding. Okay. And
1: Columbia says if we had to collect this data, we would need a whole new bureaucracy. We would change the so kind they of. They say business.
0: build the bureaucracy is what they say. They
1: say yeah, they basically build the bureaucracy. They say we're not even that kind of university. The faculty have control. We're decentralized. Columbia, Columbia University. I can't stress this enough. This is 19. This is around 1970-71. Um, not that long ago, the universities are standing up for merit and for colorblindness, and the federal government is saying no. And you know, the Columbia University eventually, the president writes like an open letter and says. They want us to become a race-conscious institution. We need federal funding. I guess that's what we're going to do. I and mean, they, just... and
0: then they pay the money, and the gravy train goes on.
1: Yeah, they, the yeah, taxpayers
0: food. and others pony up the dollars to create the bureaucracy Exa- to administer exactly. this racial analysis. When was this in Columbia's case?
1: This was about 1970-71. This 72. is nuts.
0: Yeah, yeah. The university. Oh my is, god! This is this s- makes me. So if you want any evidence, this makes me livid.
1: We see the universities and we say, you know, oh my goodness, these people are ideologically crazy. And to know the history that the Ivy League schools were standing up for merit at a time, and the federal government just not that long ago was saying, no, you have to be another way. I mean, that shows you sort of the power of government. I mean, today, look, if I mean, it's why I'm running for president. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People I miss mean, this. Thank you for. I mean, thank we you actually for can get. The, I mean, it, yeah.
0: somebody can actually sit in the White House. There's not too many. There's not. A, there's not a ton of things you can do in shaping a culture from the White House, actually. Yeah. But this is one of them.
1: Yeah, unquestionably. It
0: started with the federal government, but it started via executive order perpetrated through the entire culture and cultural fabric of our country to create this race-based artifice. I mean, I intend to do more than this, but if you do just one thing in your first four years in office to get rid of this de facto racism, that itself is a boon for the country. I'm just... I'm disappointed that not only Trump, all the way dating back to Nixon, either couldn't get it done or made it worse. And and then where's where's Desantis on this? I mean, where's the other where are the other warriors in the Republican Party? This seems like an issue they're hiding from. My goal is to make sure we don't hide from it. I'm I'm making it a tip of a spear for for my policy agenda. So by the time the debates happen later this year, I. I don't think it's going to be avoidable for the rest of the field.
1: Right. I feel the same way, yeah. But what the heck is going on? You know, I don't even blame The, the politicians are sort of a lagging indicator, right? Politicians are responding to what other people are doing. So I blame conservative media. I mean, when I wrote my Woke Institutions, is just civil rights law. When I wrote the piece sort of My first sort of uh, uh, idea connecting law to, to wokeness, people were surprised. And you know, I'd gone to law school I, with uh, Chris Nicholson. Uh, we were both interns at Center for Individual Rights. So I knew a little bit about the legal background. And I wrote this, and then like everyone was like surprised, like wait a minute, affirmative action is a even you know you the first time I told you, Vivek, I remember you said you know affirmative action is just an executive order. People are like, my goodness, right? And so Trump, when he repeals, uh, when he gets rid of critical race theory, you know the story behind this is he just sees Chris Rufo goes on Tucker. He just sees it. If Chris Rufo had said repeal affirmative action that night, I mean, Trump, Trump might have done that instead. But he, it's, happen, it's what he happens to see, and he gets rid of. You know, so the politicians are, you know, they're not the most, you know, scholarly people. They're not the ones, mm-hmm. you know, reading a lot of books, a lot of uh, historical papers. I think we should change that. Uh, yeah, well, I, hope, I mean, I hope so. That's a very optimistic sort of vision of like a, you know, politicians who actually care about ideas. Um, but that hasn't been the case so far. So, you know, it's almost a more interesting question: like, where has conservative media and where yeah. have conservative intellectuals been on this,
0: and why? why what do you think is has got fear
1: i don't think it's fear because like look it's i mean ignorance like yeah like dobbs like that anger the left like you know conservative supported that and they did that i mean they'll do a lot of things that clearly anger the left um it's really i think it's just i mean there's a general the movement has become less intellectual now there's this mm-hmm. you know this sort of a different topic but it really
0: has actually
1: it's been there's been education polarization you know even 20 years ago even even 10 years ago uh Republicans won college-educated whites in 2012. I mean, that sort of seems like 100 years ago. But 2012, I mean, Republicans uh, won college-educated whites. Now, you know, it's like 60-40 to the Democrats. And of course, college-educated of other races are even more Democratic. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's been a sort of a, a brain drain from the movement. And they're just, you know, even when there's like low hanging fruit of things that they can do and things they could change that's consistent with their principles and would be good politics they tend not to pick it up but you know we're changing that we're we're part of the change that we you know we you know we're part of the change we want to see
0: exactly i mean i i don't believe in just wishing things into existence at some point you got to actually you got to actually do it i mean one of my theses is that we do live in a complicated moment that's different from 1980 where the threats to liberty are plural they're more complicated they take the form of this merger of state power, corporate power, sort of cultural hegemony permeating different institutions, even outside of government, that it probably takes a leader in the White House who has a first personal understanding, bone deep conviction and constitutional commitment to actually get it done rather than just doing what conservative media tells them to do, frankly, on a given day. And so that's part of the premise for for my candidacy. But I just think that You know, it's my expectation, actually, Richard, that if everything you're saying is true about why they're not on the issue, it's maybe more ignorance than fear. Pretty soon, we're going to see a trend that's already started to happen in the last couple of weeks, where the other candidates in this race are just taking my ideas, and and I'm happy about that. Actually, I think that's a good thing for the country. If we open the Overton window, it could either be the Overton window of fear or the Overton window of ignorance, but either way, to actually take on sacred cows of affirmative action, climate religion, using the military to decimate cartels, basic stuff that certainly nearly all Republicans, but even most Americans actually end up supporting. So I think that'll be a good thing. But I want to get to the bottom of how difficult it would be to execute. I mean, for me, I think the simplest thing to do—I'm not saying it's the only thing to do—but the simplest thing to do would just be to rescind Executive Order 11246. I mean, it seems like a it seems like a good day one item.
1: Yeah, actually, I mean, it would probably be stronger to just clarify it and make it like the opposite. Like, you can't have an affirmative action program because look, like that you know that. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like that. This would be consistent actually.
0: with. Actually, like that. Thank you. So, so maybe we'll make a. Rescind and replace. Yeah, yeah. So
1: there was a little bit of this in the Trump administration where they would, uh, you know, Princeton at one point. I kind of
0: like that actually a lot because if you just rescind it, you mean the federal government's no longer requiring it. But yeah, I mean, replace it. You actually are codifying the Civil Rights Act, and you can use actually the uh, what do you call that? The uh, you can use the Tower Amendment as your statutory basis for that executive order. Yeah, (laughs) which is to say that actually, because executive orders technically have to have a statutory basis. Yeah, great.
1: Yeah. Well, even well, that's another. (laughs) That's a whole kind of words. Actually, the the statutory basis of it. But um, yeah, like Title Six, for example, Title Six does exist. It says don't discriminate based on race, and then Title Nine says you know uh, gender. Discriminate based on gender. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and so like, you know, this is used to push for woke stuff. But like, you know, technically, just using the letter of the law, it should be pushed to use color. Look, if you and and this is what the Supreme Court, you know, hopefully, is going to rule. In um uh in the in the uh, Harvard case, um the problem is now, um they're gonna uh they're gonna go they're gonna the universities are getting rid of the SATs. I mean it, we'll see we'll see how desperate they are. I mean they'll at least be market pressure. I mean look if they if they you know sort of wanna wanna toss out their reputation and you know uh, start taking a worse uh, a, a, uh applicant pool just to practice affirmative action, you know they'll suffer the consequences of that at the very least. Will they though? Um, they it, it's an experiment we we have no i clear. don't know
0: that they will suffer the consequences cuz
1: that if that becomes the new culture it, it depends but i mean markets are a thing and markets you know they do yeah, care. But about universities
0: this. don't run on the basis of a market but, system but
1: the, but the you know the, the students and sort of the elite professions you know the mckinsey still wants the best people and you know do people, they I, think, I mean mckinsey has the same mckinsey has the same quota systems now i mean i,
0: ha- it's I like, had, i'm just i'm just not sure that yeah. at a certain point The free market cannot fix what it is not free to fix. Quite literally, McKinsey... Does business with the federal government. That means they're bound uh, well, by the same I, constraint. Well, I mean,
1: hopefully, I mean, hopefully, by that time you're in office and you know you're not. We'll change this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well,
0: the, well, hopefully, we can put this in a position such yeah. that the market does fix it. Is is the way I think? Yeah, about
1: I think it. that's I think that's right. I mean, we-, we yeah. I don't think
0: this. Where I'm going with this is a Supreme Court ruling. If it's narrowly construed to just being in the area of college admissions, that's a step forward. Right. But it doesn't actually fix the market. The market still has its hands tied. You need a president. That's why I'm running, among other things, to to actually yeah to actually liberate the market. Yeah, unquestionably. So, so you're saying assuming those things happen, then the market will take care of this. Sure. Yeah,
1: I mean, we've had 60 years of bad policy and bad court decisions and a lot of regulation, And then a culture shaped in the wake of it. Exactly. So look, I mean, it took, it took. you know, we've had these ideas of disparate impact and affirmative action. You know, we've had it for half a century now. And, you know, it took a while to get, like, the entire culture has been shaped. So if you do everything, you know, you get in and you do everything you want in an administration, um, it's not going to like, we're going to go back to the culture of, you know, colorblindness and meritocracy overnight. Hopefully the idea is, 10, 20, 30 years later, right? Next time there's austerity, they cut the HR department, they realize they don't they cut all the DEI bureaucrats, new businesses is brought up, they don't have the government on their neck, and then we have a different culture. Nobody even at that point connects it to the policy that you, you know, implemented in 2025 right um but that that's the hope I mean people it's not satisfying to people people want to see you did policy X and then you know the next day you see the world just completely changes but we didn't get to wokeness like that we got to wokeness through a bunch of bad government policies bureaucracies created rules created people stopped paying attention to the original policy and then you woke wake up one day and the world's gone crazy and that's you know that's less satisfying but that's I think more realistic picture of how the world it's works the slow
0: motion boringdom of exactly that's how why You got to
1: care about the minutiae. Yeah. Yeah, The managerial boredom. I mean,
0: you know, I I think you cannot fight the culture war without taking the managerial bureaucracy on that actually created those cultural conditions. Because it's a lot more sizzly to go after critical race theory or gender ideology or whatever as a one off playing whack a mole. Yeah. Trends better on Twitter. uh, And I think it makes for a better news cycle for a politician. But the harder work, but more important work, is dismantling the bureaucratic machine that created this in the first place. Yeah. That's actually what I find. I mean, I'm interested in both, but that's what I find far more interesting than the content of the culture war itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That
0: is the machinery. That is the... Those are the weapons of the culture war, mm-hmm. the managerial class.
1: Yeah. I mean Reagan did a little bit of this. They put Clarence he did Thomas do some of it. was in uh was the head of a uh, EEOC. They did uh oh, reduce Cl- I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Clarence Thomas, yeah, before he was a uh, Supreme oh, Court really? Says, I'm yeah. in the
0: middle of, of working my way through a uh biography of Clarence Thomas that's due to come out soon. Maybe I'm maybe I haven't uh, yeah gotten to that part of it yeah, yet. Yeah, and
1: they um and they you know they did so they pulled they pulled back a lot of the enforcement based on disparate impact and all this other stuff. Um and so, yeah, I mean, there was a more limited version of this, but but you're right. There are certain government agencies and government bureaucracies. Look, if they have diversity in their name, like... From a conservative, nothing good's going to come out of that. That's yeah, not, I, mean, so, that's I really, mean,
0: actually, I mean, if only if they meant the kind of diversity that you and I might actually value. Yeah, but that's not what they mean.
1: Yeah, yeah right. So, yeah, I mean, nothing good's going to come out of that. I mean, diversity—the sort of branding—they used to just call them affirmative action offices. They oh, used they to, did. They did. Oh, yeah, at least they were early, honest in their, about yeah, in the it. the 1960s, 1970s—that became a, a bad word. They just then. called it affirmative action compliance. It was basically we're just complying with with the government, and then eventually became you know the diversity. Even, of, you're talking about
0: in the federal bureaucracy or in corporate America?
1: In corporate America, yeah, too. yeah. I don't know about compliance. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah.
0: The federal government too. If I had to guess, yeah, I
1: would guess. I would guess. I would guess so. And then, then the diversity idea came. And then, like you had these entrepreneurs who started saying, "Oh, diversity is just good business, right?" They they sold oh their God, sort of expertise yeah. and Mark you know,
0: Benioff or whatever he spouts off on a given day. Yeah. So joke. it was. Yeah. So
1: it was like sort of a self looking ice cream cone. Where the government would say, you know, have these things, and these people would come in, and they'd be in the bureaucracy, and you know, it, 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 it's it's uh, a you know, it, it's it's sort of this mess that's been created with federal law uh, at its root. But yes, I mean, the, the, the goal is you, you, there's things in the federal government you can attack directly. The OFCCP, I, I, I'm, don't think, I don't think there's anything good that they do. Maybe they can, you know, go after like explicit, like whites only signs. If you find that among contractors, that that
0: exists a lot today. (laughs) It's like, I love these like made up figments (laughs) of imagination. Well, you'll see a lot of, you'll see a lot of other versions of that. You'll see blacks only black owned businesses. I, I, I in my lifetime have not seen a whites only sign, other than like maybe yeah. at some like sort of stultified tennis club where they're referring to like the clothes you wear.
1: Yeah, well, that's about I, it. Well, they, I mean, that that's part of it. That's part of it. They they needed something to do. They said no more racism. People said okay, we don't. Re-. And look, the markets, you know, people want to make money, and like people are just you know, like my my idea that like markets are fair isn't that like capitalists are angels. It's like they're selfish enough that they want to make money, right? Yeah. And so if you have something to produce, that's why. Immigrants come to this country from all over the world. That's why my of parents a, came. Of every shade, every hue, every religion, every strange cultural background, every kind of food you could think of. And, you know, they succeed. Mm-hmm. Why? Because markets are selfish, because people are self-interested, right? And you know, I think Americans are good people too, but basically it's the market forces.
0: Actually, the immigrant thing actually brought up a point that I I think sometimes gets forgotten in this. And so the irony is that affirmative action, as I understand it, ends up helping. The kids of black immigrants who came to this country yeah. in the last 50 years far more yeah. than it does the descendants of slaves. So even if this is about dismantling systemic discrimination, we we stupidly make it about your skin color than we do actually about what the original justification of affirmative action was even supposed to be, right?
1: Yeah. I mean the way they the – Kids way... who come
0: from West Africa or, or whose parents or grandparents came from West Africa, they're the ones who then claimed the victimhood mantle when in fact it had nothing to do with them.
1: You know, the way we classify race, I mean it's very – you know, it, it, it's it's strange. The word – one of the things I show in my book is the word Hispanic and – these words Hispanic and Latino, they were they were very rarely used in the English language before the government made them a category. So you look at like Mexican-American or uh, Cuban or Puerto Rican-American, They those go down since the 1970s and Hispanic and Latino go up. So I have a chart that shows this, right? Yeah, it's like so an the, amalgam of like multiple different cultures that have nothing to do with each other. Exactly. So the government said you're a people and then they said – like La Raza it's, was getting all of its money basically from the federal government at the beginning. They were getting grants from these, you know, various programs saying we're La Raza, we're the race started out as a Mexican group, uh, you know, and then they and then they basically said, okay, we're all we're all Hispanics. They you know, the Asian Pacific Islander thing, I mean, it's 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 bizarre. I mean, it's the fact that um there was some lobbying at some point from a uh uh um, you know, there was um Different groups tried to get included, right? So, like Indians came; they wanted small business loans. Now, Asians get discriminated against in affirmative action in colleges, but for small business loans, all the law says is you have to be a minority group. So, most of the minority small business loans they go to uh, they go to Asians usually, totally. not blacks or Hispanics. So they're overrepresented there, and they lobbied. So now they're minorities, right? The Indians totally. are minorities. Pakistanis are Asians. Uh, and then they said no to the Iranians and the Arabs. They said that, that we're going to draw the yeah, line. draw the line. <laughs> it's so they kinda, arbitrary. They got to draw the line somewhere. Um, so, so let's just get
0: real practical about the next couple of years. Supreme Court is ruling on the affirmative action case. What we expect to probably come out in May, right?
1: Uh, probably, yeah, June. May July. June,
0: you know, whatever you know we can play player betting odds exactly what they'll say but assume that there's at least some limited basis for overturning affirmative action in college admissions but it'll give us a blueprint for what applies outside of college admissions as well how much easier is that going to make my job in doing the things that i've said i want to do as us president
1: you know it it can be it can be a, a virtual a virtuous cycle so the the Supreme Court I mean decision there's a lot to be said about that. One thing that I hope they do, and I may write about this, is that um, a lot of the colleges you know they're saying that we're gonna uh, try to get a diverse you know uh, 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 student body, but like we're gonna do other things to get a diverse student instead of to cor- uh, directly considering race in the application process. Now, according to like the plain text of like you know the Civil Civil Rights Act, like to rejig your admission system to get A certain number of black and Hispanic students. I think the Supreme Court should be brought. The decision should be brought up to say no. That's not allowed either. I mean, it's common sense. If you said we want to rig the system just to have uh, you know whites instead of blacks, but you know after you said we can't discriminate, people would see that clearly. So a broader Supreme Court decision that said something along the lines of you know all consideration of race means all consideration of race. You can't rejig the uh, system and still get government uh, federal you know federal funding. Um, That would be you know that would be very helpful. yeah, and then you know some of the stuff like the EEO 1, EEO one one two four six stuff could be due right off the bat. Even like the um, uh, there was talk in the Trump administration, uh, and they never got around to this, but um, getting rid of the disparate impacts, a standard for Title Six as a general matter, you could do that through the um, through 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 executive orders or at least through the executive agencies. There was a uh, talk of uh, Bill Barr's uh, uh, DOJ doing it near the end and just sending out that sort of directive to the rest of the government, not directive or you know guidance or whatever. Um And so, yeah, there's that. I mean, like, you know, legislation, I mean, if you want to be really ambitious, dust off the Civil Rights Act of 1995 or whatever, 1994, whatever year it was, Um, you know, get rid of the – there's a, a professor at uh, George Mason named Dave Bernstein um, who, who talked about uh, the separation of race and state. Yeah, right? I like
0: that. I, I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. Separation of race and state. It should
1: be just as unthinkable to you know take it. It's unthinkable right now to say you know for a government agency to say we have too few Catholics or too many Jews or or whatever. It should be just as unthinkable to say we need more Hispanics or more Asians or or whatever it happens to be. Yep. Um, and I think this you know I. Think- I think it
0: creates a cultural tailwind. To get this job done. It's not going to do, the Supreme Court ruling is not going to get the whole job done.
1: And, and you know, a lot of people say, oh, if you start attacking this stuff, you know, the liberals are going to mobilize, they're going to do. Uh, it's like, you don't know that because public opinion is not on their side. Mm-hmm. Um, and when public, when they feel the wind of public opinion at their side, then they could feel that uh, they could feel like they can get aggressive. Uh, when it's going against them, they have to hem and they have to hog. You know, they're 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 politically self interested actors too, and not all not all Democrats are on board. I mean, if you explain to you know, even if you look at the polling, how California, I mean, I think fifty five or sixty percent voted against affirmative action. So you know, once it becomes partisan, maybe, you know, they, they coalesce. Um, But there, you know, there's a chance to split this, especially with the, you know, with the Asian population, um, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, even with, you know, Hispanics, when you see, you know, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, there's no indication that they particularly like racial preferences, even though in some cases they- I mean, California
0: Prop 16, look at that vote. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was basically, you know, basically, you know, every, every race, I think either voted or close to a majority of every race voted for it. So, they're, you know, you're you're pushing it. You're uniting the conservative movement, right? It's like, oh, populist libertarians. Like, no, we can we can all be on board with this, right? Yep. You're the most libertarian to the most, uh, you know, to the most populist, least libertarian. You know, we're all that is one I mean, of my all, goals,
0: by the way. This unite the conservative movement, unite the country. It, it, yeah, that's exactly. One, that's one is a precondition for the other. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the 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 DEI, you know, the HR ladies might not like you, but no, yeah, they're not a they're not a huge portion of the population. They might be out of uh, a job. That's why ex- that's why they won't like me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To the extent that anything can unite this country, unite country. Most Mostly, is, is, is the best we're exactly. going be to be able to do. To the extent that anything has 60%, 70%, there's not a lot of things like that. Yep. And this is one of them.
0: So, you know, I think I wanted to just close this with, like, put the law and policy and the history to one side. Very interesting. Um, I learned a lot. So, thank you. Um, I think we don't talk enough about the impact that affirmative action has on Black Americans, actually. It, yes, it is on its face a form of anti-Asian racism, anti-Indian-American racism, anti-white racism. That, that's obvious on its face. But I think it is starting to create this new wave of anti-Black racism that stems from resentment, that stems from a feeling that things aren't working like they're supposed to meritocratically because they're not. But even to the black person who would have otherwise earned his post exclusively based on merit, if I had to pick, I think the system is most unfair to that person, more so than to me or to you or to anybody else. Because for us, it was just that we didn't get a position. The more difficult reality is you got the position, but you weren't treated with the respect that you should have been because someone still condescended on you. And it's fueling this new kind of anti-black racism that it's almost no one's fault, not the person who feels the attitude, not the person who – certainly not the person who experiences the attitude. It's the fault of a system that created it, and I think that's just the sad part in all of this. I don't think we talk about that enough, actually.
1: Yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, I don't, who knows how conscious this is, you know, uh, this kind of resentment. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of these, you know – uh, a lot of these uh, sort of studies programs african american studies chicago studies they were they didn't you know they, they their origins wasn't like that of other academic you know fields where somebody had an intellectual interest and they were contributing something new to humanity like you know psychology or whatever it was more like you know some students occupied you know government or, or uh, college buildings like at cornell and berkeley and they demanded an african american studies program a lot of the time, it was like the stuff that they, because they were affirmative action, they got into the university for affirmative action in the first place. They had to build a whole grievance department, like a study of grievance, totally. to explain their failure. Um, there was a big, you know, scandal at uh, I think it was UNC where like they were putting all the black athletes, um, you know, because they got double, you know, they got they, they were athletes, so they they came in with less, uh, um, you know, with uh, uh, wor- uh, worse academic records. But they were just putting them in the African American Studies program because, like, I guess they were just that was just what you do with people who, you know. Uh, can't cut it in other fields. Yeah, um, and it
0: sort of creates these new made up fields and it, it creates this culture of condescension, right? Okay, yeah. This is your place in the university. You know, it's kind of sad. Actually. It's funny,
1: you know. So the, uh, when I was in uh, law school, there's these two girls who I went with, and they were, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're liberals, but they were talking about another student who passed, who failed the bar, right? University of Chicago Law School. Not many people failed the bar, so it was something they were talking about. And they're like, "Oh, he's a white male. That's very strange." And they're like, "Oh no, I heard he might be Hispanic." And their assumption was, if he was a white male, he would have gotten into University of Chicago Law School on merit. He wouldn't have failed the bar. Yeah. When then they said, "Oh, he's Hispanic." Oh. It sort of makes sense now. Okay, now I understand he'd fail the bar. And you know what? That assumption—you you might want well to say, "Oh, these liberal girls, hypocrites." It's a reasonable assumption. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't it, land it, well
0: it, on my ear. But if you think about it, it, it they're just responding to data, to it, statistics, exactly. and it's exactly. no one's fault. It's not their fault. It's not the fault of the of the black person, the Hispanic person, the white person, yeah. who's on the receiving end of that that difficult kind of statement. It's just the fault of a system that created those attitudes, but you're not allowed to say it in public, but doesn't change the fact that people actually think it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Tom Sowell has talked about this. He said, you know, when he, like he was an expert in, you know, cameras or something when he was in the military and he says people would, you know, even the most racist, you know, guys from the South would come up to him because they said, oh, the black guy learned this, you know, he didn't have the opportunities. He must be really good at it. And he noticed over the years as affirmative action became more instituted, you know, he didn't get that kind of deference anymore. You know, people mm-hmm. make different assumptions. Yeah. I mean, there is a, um, You know, there's a cost. It's like people are not that stupid. I mean, people can see that you're, you know, people when they talk about law admissions or they talk about admissions to graduate school or uh, universities, they know the bar's being lowered and they know what that means. And they have experience. They know who the smartest people in their classes are. They know who got in and who maybe, you know, can't keep up with the work. And you're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to, uh, you know... uh, uh, you know make a political issue out of it this kind of like sort of a uh, you know submersion of like what's really going on and this sort of dishonesty it teaches it's not healthy for our culture and that's why it's important to address and, and i
0: think it is one of these issues you you put your point on it correctly motivates me even more to go after this in this republican primary process i think it can you know, unite conservatives right you've got the trump wing the bush wing you know bush actually said it well in this i've mean, I criticized george bush for a lot of things but not for this he's called it the soft bigotry of low expectations Chief Justice John Roberts famously said, right, the best way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, right? And so say what you will about John Roberts, say what you will about George Bush. This is something that the conservative movement has has, has been on the right, the, the proverbial right side of history. We've been on it for a long time. We've actually lacked leaders to execute. Trump was actually a leader who failed to execute. So for all the criticisms of Bush, and I agree with him on a lot of those criticisms, you got to call it like I see it. Here was one where the conservative movement's been right for a long time. You had an, an executive who did take a lo- strong view of executive power, who just didn't get the job done. We're going to get the job done, and I think that that will hopefully be the beginning of a, at long last, the beginning of an e pluribus unum reuniting of the country, a revival of the country around this idea of merit. And I think if we could do that. Put the merit back in America. I joke around sometimes. You know, I think that's yeah. actually one of the missing ingredients in our national revival. And I
1: think that's part, I think that what what you're doing, I mean, I think is part of it because people don't, I think, know how to talk about it in a way that's positive. Oh, this black guy, you know, got an advantage. Uh, you know, it's unfair to, okay, yeah, it's it's unfair. That's right. But, you know, that doesn't really motivate people to take on this uncomfortable issue. When you say, I'm going to build, you know, we're going to sort of have a new national identity. We're going to care about merit. We're going to care about excellence. We're going to care about doing yes. great things. Then you get the motivation to overcome that political resistance. So you know we're going to we're, do it
0: in a positive way, and, that, and not because we're just sugarcoating it with some positive yeah. veneer. No, the essence of merit, the essence of excellence, is itself a positive and galvanizing message accessible to anyone, no matter their skin color.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we want to that's cure cancer. We want to cure cancer. I mean, we want to we want to colonize space. Yes, we're going to need to get the best people to do exactly. the best job. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
0: I love it man. Thanks for joining. I hope this is the first of a few that we do over the course of the next year. I think we we only covered one topic of shared interest. We have others too. So, you know, let's dive deep when you're ready. Uh,
1: absolutely. Any time, Vivek. This is yeah. great.
0: Yeah. Thanks for coming out, man. Thank you. I'm Vivek Ramaswamy, candidate for president, and I approve this message. Paid for by Vivek 2024.